today's scripture comes from Hebrews 4, 11 through 16. You can follow along in your Bible or your Bible app or on the screen. It says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast for our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Word of God for the people of God. All right. Good morning, Mercy Hill Church. Keep your butt. All right. We're, we're getting there. We're getting away. Coffee's to your left if you need it. Today was one of those days where you was worshiping with coffee in hand. Short night, <clears throat> early morning. Glad to be here, though. Hebrews chapter 4. Um, I need a volunteer today. As you keep your Bibles open to Hebrews 4, um, Sammy. Would you help me? Would you just come right up here for a moment and help me? How many goals did you score yesterday? Uh, two. Two? I thought you scored three. You don't even know. Did he turn and face everybody? Does he look like a soccer player? Yeah, he scored. You scored three goals yesterday. You're hung up on three. You scored three last weekend, too, just in case you forgot. Yeah, so good job. Will you take this? Will you open it up? Any idea what it is? Okay, keep opening. So, any clue how to read that? Nope. Nope. It keeps opening up. You can keep going. It's kind of it's kind of weird. Yeah, it's not very size friendly. So, Sammy's trying to figure out this paper map. Um, the, here's the crazy thing about it, the old style of doing navigation. If you take a paper and map. You knew where you were starting, and you could trace to where you were supposed to end. But really knowing where you were along the journey, you best guess. You're down there uh, with the little navigation tool at the bottom looking at the scale. Anybody remember this? And you're trying to use like your finger or a pencil to measure. And then you're like putting it up and flip-flopping it. And then your finger's in the way. And you're, oh, I put a whole thumb, extra thumb length in there. I think we're about so-and-so. All right, Sammy, can you fold that back up for me? Hey, you did that pretty good. All right. Um... Here's the thing. Why would we ever choose to use a paper map these days when we have GPS? GPS is moment-by-moment navigation. It gives you updates. It'll reroute you around wrecks and construction. It'll update you to new roads that weren't even there a few months ago when a paper map would have been printed. gives you quicker routes, detailed information. It's more accurate Why would we ever go back to using paper maps? In much the same way, 
today, we're going to look at two pieces of what I am calling spiritual technology. We're going to look at two resources that God has given us in order to not only survive in the Christian life, because sometimes it just feels like survival is winning, but I believe also to thrive in the Christian life. Those two things are the Word of God and prayer. I know they're not new to you, just like a paper map isn't new to you. But I am convinced that most people have no idea the resources that are at our disposal in the Christian life. Today we're looking at this amazing spiritual technology of the Word of God and prayer. And most of us, when it comes to the Christian life, we think of these as outdated technology. We think of them like, well, we need to read the Bible. I guess we should pray. And oftentimes that's our attitude as if to say, I guess we should check the map and see where we are on the journey. Oh, we probably ought to look at the map and make sure we're headed in the right direction. All the while the truth is God has given us this amazing resource that gives us accurate moment-by-moment updates. It instantly responds to our navigational questions, the road hazards we'll face, and the unexpected twists and turns of life. The big idea for today is this. Jesus gives us amazing resources for the Christian life if we utilize them. If we utilize them. I entitled today's sermon, Secret Weapons of the Christian Life. The irony of that statement is that secret weapons are usually hidden and they're usually for they're usually hidden from your enemy but the truth of the matter is that the word of god and prayer have become so familiar to most of us so common so ordinary that their power has become hidden in many ways to us the users and so today my goal is to remind us of the power of these spiritual resources so that we can not only survive, but thrive as followers of Jesus. Let's look at the first resource that God gives us to survive and thrive in this Christian life, and it's the resource of God's mouth. God's mouth, His very words. Look at the context of this passage in, uh, beginning in, in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This is a warning that we've seen for the last two chapters, right? Keep the faith. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. Over and over again, we've heard this in Hebrews. And that word strive is not the idea of let's work for our salvation, but it carries the idea of to make haste, to be earnest, to concentrate one's energies on the achievement of a goal. One commentator said, it is the call to display a spirit of zeal as opposed to a spirit of unconcern. That we would show great zeal in our desire that we would keep the faith and that those around us would also keep the faith. A spirit of zeal. You know, this message, I think, oftentimes of striving to keep the faith, I think it gets misdirected an awful lot in the church. Have you ever heard people who just kind of mutter, yep, this old world going to hell in a handbasket. 
Have you ever known people like that? Anybody grow up in a traditional church setting filled with people who had followed Jesus for years and years? And some were really faithful, and some were what I call, um, even in their older age, they, they move with the characteristic of integrity, and others failed in really following Jesus faithfully, and they move with a characteristic of despair. Yep, world's going to hell in a handbasket. I don't even know what that means. Like, do you know what that means? The world is going to hell in a handbasket? I did a little research on it. I think the original phrase was, the world's going to hell in a wheelbarrow, but it didn't sound as good. And they were using guillotines to chop people's heads off at the time. I'm serious. 1700s is when the phrase came around. And so they changed it to, it just sound, it had a better ring to it. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. Now, there is a little bit of truth to that statement. When we talk about keep the faith, you know, there is some truth. The problem with that statement is it carries the idea of let's just batten down the hatches. You know, let's just hide behind the fort. Let's keep them out. And we're going to keep the good stuff in. But there is some truth to let's keep the faith in this idea that the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Last week, 1 John 5, 19, we looked at, Andrew mentioned this during our worship time. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So when we talk about keeping the faith, like the writer is is reminding us of in this context, all this is context to really get where we need to go today to look at these resources. When we think about this context of keeping the faith, if the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, then then it's true there is a temptation of batting down the hatches. There is a temptation to put the forward up high and to keep all of that out. Not to love the world or anything in the world. Yet Jesus also said that he came in order to love the world. So there's this tension that we face. The problem for us in that tension is that when we get away from the very word of God that we're going to look at today, it leaves us in a position as individuals, and I think it's where we are in America today, it leaves us literally flying upside down. The, the term for that, uh, aeronautically, is spatial disorientation. And about 40% of flights are due in some way to some aspect of spatial disorientation in which the pilot didn't have the needed instruments in order to know navigationally where he was. Spatial disorientation takes place when a pilot loses his visual horizon. And he can be going into a stink bank, and before he knows it, he can be flying upside down. The G-force is pressing him into his seat, and he doesn't even realize that he's upside down. What's the problem with flying upside down? You lose lift. And as you begin to lose lift, if you pull back on the stick in order to go up, you don't go up. Where do you go? You crash. And we live in a world that because we have refused to listen to God's voice, we're flying upside down. We live in America in a world that is completely topsy-turvy. I'm going to illustrate it to you using a cultural illustration that some of you are going to go, I don't know why you went there. Should be tiptoeing around that. Listen, in 1990, there was a little movie that came out, and even Arnold Schwarzenegger was told by a kindergartner, 
what a boy is like and what a girl is like. In 1990, a little boy stood up and said, boys have this certain kind of anatomy and girls have this certain kind of anatomy. And from 1990 until where we stand today, we now live in a world in which your gender is whatever you choose it to be. Just like if you want to change your first name or last name, go do it. If you want to change your gender, go do it. How did we get to this place? Now, I want to be very careful in my tone in the way that I talk about this because there are people who struggle with gender identity and their struggle, we're called to love them no matter where they are in that struggle. But we live in this society because we've come to a point in which we no longer believe the Genesis account in which God made male and female. We live in such a day in which there is no God And we choose whatever we feel like. When we reach that point, we are no longer keeping the faith. And that's why what the resource of God's Word that we're looking at today, that's why it's so important as we think about everything that is at stake. Everything that's at stake in front of us. Now, look at what he says in verse 12. He goes on, he says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This verse is really familiar to some of you. You've heard this before. It's kind of an interesting verse. What exactly is it saying? In order to grab hold of these resources, we need to understand something. We've been told, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith. We've been hearing that for two chapters. And in that, as we think about what it means to keep the faith, to live lives of integrity, not of despair... As we think about what that looks like, we remember that faith is not a passive matter. It's always active and ongoing. We never just put our faith in neutral. We never retire from our faith. We never say, I've had enough. Our faith should never be at a point where, where all our stories of following God are about yesteryear. They should be about today with dreams for the future. But as we think about that, uh, one, one commentator or one writer said it in this way, God's commands are like the rudder that determines the ship's direction. Important as that is, the ship does not have power to move until a strong wind comes and fills the sails. In the Christian life, God has given us His mouth and His ear. Incredible resources. His words and prayer in order that they would feel our sails of faith. Now, when we think about God's words, that's what verse 12 and 13 are writing about. They say that God's words are living, that they're alive. Uh, In 2 Timothy, Paul says it this way in chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Some of you heard that verse before. But let me just remind you, Paul does not say 
the inspired words of men coming from their own spiritual insights. He doesn't say the inspired words of men. Instead, he says the expired, E-X-P-I-R-E-D, the expired, outbreathed words of God's very mouth given through men. You say, how does that work? It's a miracle. It's amazing that over 40 men, over a couple of centuries, would write all these books that we have in front of us, that they would, not knowing one another on different continents, that there would be one storyline in one narrative that would all fit together and that God would speak His words to us so that they are living. You know, there may be differences in our cultural, social, and historical settings compared to the original readers. And our understanding of a particular passage may and should reflect those differences. However, we should read the Bible as God's Word to us. God's Word to us. It's not just relevant, but it's authoritative and binding on us just as it was on the original recipients. It's timeless. It's living. Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.19, he says, you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. God's Word, it illuminates our lives. You've been riding in the car. Have you ever heard, you know, there's a preacher that comes on the radio. Some of them are good, some of them are bad. <laughs> but have you ever been riding in the car? Maybe it's some old AM station you're on, and there's some old gravelly-voiced preacher, and good or bad, if he's preaching the Word of God, you turn it up, and there's something about those words that begin to change your perspective on your day, on your thoughts. How is that? You don't know this guy. His words are coming through the radio waves. And all of a sudden, you are impacted by truth. Truth always changes our lives. It's living. Also, God's Word is active. Now, most people don't believe this, but God is actually speaking back to us through His eternal Word when we read it and meditate on it. I don't think we recognize how crazy that is, guys and gals. Think about that for a minute. People who speak to God, the world calls what? If we speak to God, they call us religious. Think about the flip side of that. People who hear the voice of God, what's the world call? Nuts. Yeah, you're crazy. You hear voices? Do we really believe that God speaks? How often do we fail to hear from God because we come to His Word with the underlying belief that He will not speak to us in a meaningful, living, active experience as we meet with Him. Our hearts and minds aren't open to it. We open His Word so often to gain more information. You know, how often have you opened your Bible and said, I need to go find a nugget of truth? That's not how we should approach God's Word. Martin Luther said this, Let the man who would hear God speak read Holy Scripture. That's a scary quote. Let the man who would hear God speak read Holy Scripture. What's the flip side of that? What happens when we begin, when we stop reading the Scripture? What happens when we stop making the Bible a daily part of our lives in which we are meeting with a God who is alive and active? We stop hearing His voice. Then whose voice do we start listening to? 
The Puritan Thomas Watson adds, by reading other books, a heart may be warmed, but by reading this book, it is transformed. God's word is alive. It's active. He goes on, he says, sharper than a two-edged sword. If you look at the context and if you look at these these verses, what is he saying? Why why is he talking about, uh, let's look at it. Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. Is he actually talking about dividing those things? No, what he's saying is God's Word gets to the deepest parts of our souls, of our personalities, of who we are. Nothing can be hidden from its sight. And he goes on and he said it's sharper than any two-edged sword. At our house, uh, we usually eat around the dining room table in the evenings, but sometimes, like on a Friday night, we'll grab food if we've just cooked a pizza in the oven or something, and we'll grab TV trays, and we watch something on TV, and Johannes's favorite show is Can We Watch Forged in Fire? It's on the History Channel, and if you've never seen it before, it's four blacksmiths who come together, and they're given a lawnmower or something. Go and make a knife out of this. You have four hours. And they're given specific details. And they hammer and hammer. And four hours later, one of them's cut. And then they put a handle on it and they sharpen it. And they go through all the tests. And one of my favorite parts is when Doug Markaida, who's a hand-to-hand combat specialist, he will take their knife And he always does the sharpness test. Now, they've usually put the knife through some kind of brutal uh, exercise like chopping a deer antler or something, you know. And now he's going to see, is this knife sharp? And I I love it when Doug Markaida, he'll, I'm going to, no one here who's a member of PETA, are they? I'm checking. He'll slice through like a pig or something. Like they'll have like a big carcass hanging up or, or through a ballistics dummy. And when he gets done, he, he will kind of look and Doug will go, it will cut. <laughs> and whoever's made that knife, they're like so excited. And it's one of the funniest parts of the show. It, it will cut. Or yes, yeah, sometimes he says, it will kill. <laughs> And uh, God's Word, you know, that kind of works for this passage. Almost in a sense, it will cut and it will kill. God's Word, as we come to it, is sharper than a two-edged sword, which means there's no blunt side to it, right? It never fails to cut. If it's sharper than a two-edged sword, it cuts with the edge of life, and it also cuts with the edge of death. Now think about this for for a moment. It gives us good perspective in disciple making. If God's called us to go and to make disciples, if He's called us to be salt and light, He's called us to honor His truths, He's holy and He's set apart. And these are His words. This is his, these are His rules for living. This is His life book. It's active. It's alive. There's not a lot of question about how we should live. It's just a question of whether we're going to honor how we should live or not. Now, in that context... If God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword, if it cuts with the edge of life and if it cuts with the edge of death, listen to what Paul writes. This is a great illustration in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and 17. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. This is a picture of a general coming back with his army. 
He's leading them through the town. They're celebrating. They're on parade. All, all that they have done is they come back in. He always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? When we read and study and meditate on the Bible, listening to the mouth of God speaking to us today, for some it brings life, and for others it brings death. And so there are going to be people within the world who are around us that as we tell them and share with them about the love of Jesus, there are going to be some who are going to not only not accept it, they're going to be harsh. They're going to be downright, they're going to hate us because of what we share. Now, I love the fact in 2 Corinthians that Paul says we're the, the aroma. And so there is to be a fragrance about our lives in which we aren't to be the judge and we can convince no one to follow Jesus. We're not, we don't change anyone. We don't save anyone. We merely testify to the one who has made our lives smell good. There is an aroma about our lives. Somebody says... What is that about you? You're like, is it my Old Spice? No. It's even better than Old Spice. It's Jesus. Something different about us. Now, the last resource that we see that helps us to survive and thrive is not only just God's mouth, but God's ear. We have God's ear. Listen to verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The high priest in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement, once a year, he would enter the most holy place behind the veil to stand before God. Having made a sacrifice for himself and the people, he brought the blood into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled it on the mercy seat, which was God's throne, His presence there in the Old Testament before Israel. And He brought it there in order to make atonement for sins. That was the job of the high priest. And we'll get into this later in Hebrews chapter, I think it's chapter 9, as we'll see that Jesus is our perfect high priest. But if you look back at the Old Testament, if you read through the book of Leviticus, what you'll discover is on the Day of Atonement, He would enter behind the veil where the very presence of God resided, he would enter with a bell on and with a rope around his foot so that they could hear, is he still alive? Has the presence of God struck him down dead? If it has, we will pull him out with the rope. But he was entering once a year in order to sacrifice so that their sins would be forgiven, that God would view them that their sins would be atoned for 
they would be free of sin. And this passage is reminding us that Jesus is our high priest who's made atonement once and for all. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. Jesus came and lived a perfect life. He's the only man in all of history who lived a perfect life. He's the man who was God, yet we chose to sacrifice Him because of the sin that resides in each of our hearts. Jesus is our high priest, and He's able to sympathize with us because He's been tested like we've been tested, but without sin. And that should give us confidence as we go before God. It should give us confidence as we pray to know that Jesus understands that we'll receive mercy and grace. Now, I, I want to I just make one caveat to this passage because this is one of the first really like positive passages that we've seen. We've seen a lot of warnings up until this point. But in chapters 2 and 3 and now 4, we finally see this real positive exhortation like, let's approach the throne of grace with confidence. I just want us to be careful that as we read that, as we read this passage, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I think there are too many Christians today who hear that and say, Oh, yeah, let's pray because God always shows me grace and mercy. So let's just pray. Let's just ask for forgiveness. Everything's going to be fine. Doesn't mean that I need to change. Let me just, let me just draw close to God and He's going to draw close to me. And that doesn't mean that I need to do anything because God's grace and His mercy, it's always there for me. Doesn't cause me to change at all. And I just want to remind us in that of a culture that is filled with just the love of God. It's all about the love of God. And we're, we forget that God is also holy and just, which means that He is wrathful. Praise God. Because there is no love without wrath. And talk to me later about that if you don't understand that. But there is no love without wrath. And as we draw close to God, let us be reminded that there is grace and there is mercy, but let's don't take them for granted. Let's remember what Paul has said in Romans 6, in which he has reminded us, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound all the more? Let it never be. He almost curses. No. As we draw near to God in confidence, let us be reminded that there is a high priest who's gone before us, that he understands everything that we will face, every sin that we're gonna, that's going to come up against us, Jesus understands. He has been tempted in every way that He's been tempted, yet was without sin. So let it, let it remind us to be like Jesus, to find grace and mercy, and to say, let me discipline myself so that I can follow in the grace of Jesus. Let His mercy not be wasted so that I can be more and more like Him as the Holy Spirit fills me up, as the Holy Spirit empowers me to follow Him. He says, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Let me just start to wrap up by saying this. Do you draw near to God regularly? I'm not asking if you read the Bible. You read the Bible and not be obedient to it and be further away from God than you were when you started. 
Do you draw near to God? Do you, rec- do you realize that? You can read the Bible and it can make you more disobedient. It can push you further away from God if you just gain information, but you don't act on it. Then all of a sudden, you've got more truth that you're held accountable to that you're not acting on. So the Bible's not just about gaining nuggets and then trying to do it in our own strength. But do you draw near to God? Like pray, is prayer something that you ought to do or something that you get to do? Like when you think about prayer, he says, draw near to Him with confidence that we can receive mercy and grace. I was just reminded this week, do you cast your cares on Jesus? Like all of them? Like how often do you face anxiety in your life? How often do you face anxiety in which you're, you're nervous, you're fearful, you're dreading? Some of you live with anxiety on a day-by-day basis every week. That you say, my life is an anxious life. Have you ever given that to Jesus? Have you ever in the midst of your anxiety just said, Jesus, I, I'm not sure what I'm anxious about, but I'm super anxious Let me just start to think about this and pray about this. Jesus, what what am I anxious about? Oh, Jesus, I think I'm anxious about this thing now that I think about it. Jesus, would you help me with that thing? Would you help me to conquer it and overcome it? I can be anxious about preaching. That's a problem. I do it every week. There's always one coming. You say, one what? A Sunday. It's like in two days every time I turn around. And if I'm not careful, I'll find myself worried about what y'all think about me, worried about the truth of what I've said. Was I funny? Was I interesting? Did it make sense? And before I know it, I'm anxious. Instead of saying, God, this isn't about me. This is about you. It's your word. If people are offended, they're offended not by me. They're offended at you. Cuts like a sword. To some, it's going to be the words of life. To others, it's going to be death. My calling that God was what you declared for me to do was to speak your word. So God, give me the power and the passion and the energy, even when I'm tired because I've driven to St. Louis and been busy all weekend. Give me the energy to speak your truth and not be anxious about it. And guess what happens? He does it. It's amazing. Guys, I've got this secret weapon to share with you this morning, this radical truth prayer works it really does and a lot of us don't believe it these are God's very words they're active they're alive let me just conclude with this there is a video that's floating around um, and a lot of you have probably seen it it's uh, a former Navy SEAL and he's now a military commander, and he's given a graduation speech. And in it, he says, he gives the advice for a successful life. He says, if you want to know how to have a successful life, I have one thing for you to do. Make your bed every day. Really? That's all you got? Make your bed? Make your bed every day. He goes on. Google it. It's great. He goes on, and he says, uh, some days will seem unfruitful. They will not go as planned. They may feel unproductive. When you get home, you can at least say, I accomplished one thing today. I made my bed. He said, some days will just be bad. 
at least you can walk home and you can find a neat and tidy house in which your bed is made. He goes on and on and on. It's really good. We all know the importance of studying the Bible, developing a robust prayer life, but it's like making our bed. It often goes unattended. What if we gave this advice for a successful life? Every day, read God's Word and tell Him hello. You say, Brad, your preaching is so simple. Then do it. Every day, read God's Word and tell Him hello. What would our days be like? We have His mouth. We have His ear. The truth is, for me, if I'm being really open, I'd usually like to do anything in the morning except study the Bible. That's the truth. I'd like to do anything in the morning except study the Bible. I am distracted at every turn. You say, by what? By the weather. I will get on my phone and look at what the weather is. Oh, what's the weather going to be today? What should I wear? By social media. And by that time, I'm looking at the news. And then I'm thinking about what I have to do. And by the time I'm thinking about what I have to do, it's over. Because why go study God's Word when I've got a Bible study to write? We'll just go do that. I am distracted at every turn. And I fail so often to fight against the feeling of just doing this out of obligation or routine. I don't recognize that I am meeting with the God of the universe and the resources that He has given me are powerful to bring about the greatest change imaginable in the hearts and lives of those who are exposed to this truth beginning with my heart. And so I have to fight through that every morning. This morning early. It was like 5.30. I didn't want to get up. And I have to fight through on Sundays. Don't go study your message. Meet with God first. Hear His voice. Read His words. Say hello. The last thing is this. John Newton was penetrated and captured by the Word of God. He was raised in a Christian home in the mid-1700s. He left home and joined the British Navy. There he entered deeply into the ways of sin. Eventually, he deserted to live in Africa, a place where his lust could have the most opportunity for satisfaction. In the years that followed, he became a slave trader, abused by those who gained power over him. He was even kept in chains as a slave trader. Physically wrecked, he escaped toward the sea and found his way aboard a British merchant vessel. Due to his knowledge of navigation, he became a ship's mate. However, when the captain showed trust in him, he broke into the ship's supply of rum, became so drunk that when the captain returned and struck him on the head, he fell overboard. If one of the crew had not rescued him, he would have drowned. As the ship was nearing Scotland on the way home, it ran into a storm. It was blown off course. For days the storm blew and water came into the floundering vessel. And Newton spent countless hours down in the hold, working the pumps in desperate fear for his life. There his mind turned to Bible verses his mother had taught him before she died when he was merely six years old. The Word of God came alive within him, convicted his thoughts and attitudes, and brought him to repentance. And he cast himself on Jesus Christ for forgiveness and salvation. 
ship ultimately did make it safely to port. Newton entered into the study of theology. He became a notable Puritan minister. We know him best for his hymns, especially for his hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. God's Word changes us. As we prepare our hearts for communion, would you simply take time with me? Just bow your head for a moment. Reflect this day. Thank God for His living, active, piercing Word. Consider the sin in your life that God has put to death because of His convicting words to you. Meditate on the times that God has spoken to you through His Word, giving you wisdom, guidance, direction, vision for your life, peace, freedom from overwhelming anxiety. As the Holy Spirit reminds you of the amazing resources God's given us in His Word and through prayer, let us be a church that commits to honor the Lord, to thrive as Christians by meeting God daily, saying hello, repenting and believing all the days of our life. As we prepare to take communion, all who have repented and believed in Jesus are welcome at His table. Hear the words of the institution of the Lord's Supper. The Lord Jesus, on the night of His arrest, took bread, and after giving thanks to God, He broke it and gave it to His disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the saving death of the risen Lord until he comes. With thanksgiving, let us offer God our grateful praise. I'm going to invite the band forward to lead us in taking communion. And let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Thank you that you loved us enough that you didn't leave us alone. You left us your Holy Spirit and you also left us clear direction through your words, through the Bible. And God, you've given us direct access to you that at any moment in time we can pray, we can seek you, we can hear your voice, we can listen. Father, I pray that today you would remind us of your goodness to us. God, I pray that we would use the resources that you've given us. Not just alone, but in our coffee groups, in our missional communities. God, with people that we meet along the way, that we would share your word with them. God, that we would be diligent in following you all the days of our life. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.